Hello and welcome to the podcast Load Caesars episode 716 on today, the 10th of August 2023. I am joined for Lads Hour as your host, Connor, by Harry. Hey. And Charlie. Good afternoon. Yeah, well done. Harry, you've got to take those bloody things off. No. It's, you're not Ken. Stop trying. <laughs> I don't need to be Ken. I'm Knuff. Literally me. Anyway, <laughs> so we're not going to talk about Barbie again because I know you guys are probably sick of it by now. Actually, we're going to talk about how the feminists have started to notice that men are suffering, uh, the socialist housing scheme for Somalis in the UK, and Lee Anderson's moderate comments mm. towards the asylum system. It's actually really bright in here. Putting these back on. There we go. Just radiating the Kennedy. You won't believe nothing. But let's let's stop with the bloody Barbie Ken stuff, okay? I made the one joke. That's enough. All, all right, right, okay. That's Ken off. Anyway, right, let's get into our topics before you put your head in your hands. So some feminists have decided to take notice that plenty of men are feeling despondent and dejected because they've had their economic opportunities stripped from them by the two-income trap and mass migration, and they feel that an unprecedented amount of them are not in relationships. I think it's 27% now, 18 to 30, have never had an intimate partner. That's historically uh, a total aberration. And so there are plenty of men that are dying deaths of despair. They're dropping out of university at seven times the rate as women are. Women are often out-earning men and they're complaining where all of the good men gone. And there are some center-left, some former and still feminists, who are taking note and going, well, what what's the issue with men? And so I thought I'd go through some of the some of the comments today because it's nice that they're late to the party. I, I appreciate that they're finally starting to take notice, but I am somewhat annoyed that it's only possible to enter men's issues into the mainstream through the filter of feminism and softcore progressivism. And one of the reasons I'm quite annoyed at this is because they're addressing the theme of male loneliness. And I haven't seen a single article or video on the topic yet, and we're going to mention a few of them today, that have come even as close as one of my favorite Anon accounts tweets here from Zero HP Lovecraft, of where he says, at the crux of male loneliness, the component of male lived experience is that the wholly is wholly inaccessible to women more than any other is the colossal and abysmal apathy of the universe towards you. Women cannot relate to this, except perhaps women of exceptional ugliness, childless crones, or female-to-male transsexuals, who are obviously men, YouTube. Trans, trans men are men. And so the, the point there is that we start off from very different starting positions of where as a young woman, you have plenty of benefits accrued to you by virtue of being uh, attractive. And as a young man, until you have proven yourself and accumulated enough wealth, and this is the message, at least the, the part of the message that is resonating with the mainstream from Andrew Tate, that a man is what, not worth anything until he proves himself in fire that is resonating with the young men that feel disaffected. And this isn't the message that's cutting through from the feminists that are waking up to this. And I think that part missing is, is why this isn't effective until men start entering, entering the conversation about being men. Um, speaking of the thing that got us into this place, if you'd like to subscribe to our website for as little as £5 a month, we have premium content like this, which is mine and Carl's discussion on the evil origins of feminism, where I painstakingly went through Simone de Beauvoir's 800-page tome, The Second Sex. <laughs> I know. My testicles haven't recovered still. And we actually did a part two, so that's coming out next week, and that's more about the solutions and how to undo her cultural corruption, because the feminists, thanks to technology, were, were very successful in their progressive long march through the institutions. Birth control was a mistake. I will be elaborating later. So here are some of the center-left women that actually care about men and would like to see them succeed. So let's start off with Shoe on Head. So she recently made a video that got about a million views within a day. And her video's content is less important to this segment because the video's content was a bunch of articles from Vox and the like saying that men are going through a loneliness epidemic and then saying that the likes of Vorch and Anna Kasparian have picked up on the fact that the reason that the right are recruiting men, 
the right is because the leftists aren't talking to men because they've spent the last 10 years calling them toxically masculine and pathologizing male competence as a marker of tyrannical patriarchy. The interesting thing here is the comments that Shu has compiled in this thread after the video came out. So she compiled a bunch of leftist ones in her video. The comments underneath her video include things like this, and they're not atypical. I'm just going to read a few, and I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts. So one said, I'm 21, never have a girlfriend. I see my friends maybe once every two months. I've been living alone since I was 18. I work 10 hours a day, Monday to Friday, and still sometimes I even go to work on Saturday, and I'm still broke. The only thing that keeps me offing myself is alcohol. Lol. And this is not atypical. There is about 20 tweets in this thread. So that I'm 32, a dishwasher, and I haven't felt connection with anyone since I quit drinking. I want to kill myself, I'm not going to, but the thoughts are there. So what a lot of these men are expressing is a feeling of fundamental uselessness without a person who is dependent on them to, to care for, without a vocation with upward mobility and a, a sense of meaningful contributions to the world. Why not just sit around and drink yourself to a death in despair? Well, go on. I have thoughts on this, which is that it's good that Shu on Head is, is addressing this and putting this out there. But the fundamental issue that the left has always had with addressing men's issues and that women tend to have with addressing men's issues is that they always frame it from a fundamentally female perspective. Men do not want to just talk through mm. things. Share your feelings. It yeah. is impossible for a man to just share his feelings and then feel better about it. Women, I completely understand, they want some kind of, not necessarily echo chamber, but something very close to an echo chamber where they can share their feelings and all of the women around them agree with those feelings, validate those feelings, and then get to share it. And it's like a little circle where they go around and do that. Men have issues of their own that can't just be solved because, as Zero HP Lovecraft points out at the beginning there, we have the knowledge of the complete apathy of anyone's sympathy. Women oftentimes will say that they have sympathy and they do want men to share their feelings. And sometimes you'll get women who are more than happy to actually listen to you and do care about your feelings. But for the vast majority of men, especially if they're trying to get the interest of a woman, getting the interest of a woman will not be, uh, will not be possible if the only thing that you're doing is spilling your guts about your intimate feelings to them, because that's not what women are after. No, they, if they want you to be stoic and emotionally constant enough that when they need to put their feelings and problems on you, you can solve it for them because the man will be the person of last resort. Yep. If, if you have been with a woman for years and you <clears> trust <throat> and care and know each other well enough, then maybe you can spill some of your guts. But even then, you will get, uh, you will get examples where women have said for ages that they want their uh, boyfriend or husband, whoever, to share their feelings. Then mm. he does and maybe cries or tears up a little bit and immediately the woman just goes... Yeah. Not interested anymore. Many such cases. That's, that's sadly what happens. See, so what men want, and I've had this from friends of my own uh, who, who say to me, you have problems. Why don't you speak about it? Why don't you go to therapy? Because therapy will not solve anything. For one, therapy is just trying to reprogram my brain in a more feminine manner in the first place. Two, nobody will care. At the end of the day, the only thing that will get me feeling good about myself is if I do things. Work yourself out of the hole. Definitely. Yeah, and yeah. this is this is the thing that a lot of people don't understand is why Andrew Tate is so popular among young men at the moment. I don't like Andrew Tate. Me neither. I think he's a bad role model for people, but he addresses men in the way that they want to be addressed. He talks to them like they are men. And you have touched on something interesting there. I don't know if you gentlemen have experienced this, but I don't think 
girls even necessarily want a solution when they come to you to speak about their problems? Because yep. more often than not, it actually annoys my if girlfriend, for example. If you offer a solution, if I become super, If I just zero in on, right, how are we going to solve the problem that you're coming to me about? That's actually not what they want. They just want someone to listen. They, they want a, a space to air their concerns. Um, whereas men, that's just not, as you said, it's not how we work. Um, I mean, we want a solution. We want that if we've got yes. a problem, we want it solved. Yes. And then we can move on to the next problem to solve. That's Absolutely. how we operate. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's a kind of, it's an obvious observation to make, really. But I feel at my best after I've just done a workout or like a, you know, every a time session or whatever, because that's just, that's how men work. That's how our brains work. Um, but on all of these comments that we're seeing here, um, not to shamelessly shill my own work, but I wrote an article for Lotus Eaters called Freedom Like Equality is a False God. Yeah. And that caused some, I don't know, it was, it was controversial. There were a lot of people who disagreed with that take. But I think that this is the outcome of freedom. What these me men need is not more freedom. They need purpose. They need duty. They, they need a, a they heroic... Need structure and order, something yes. to aim for, some kind of progression that they can see where they can take their life from yes. here to here. They don't want to be going all over the place. Mm. They want a straight line goal. Yeah, to fundamentally achieve. belonging. That's what these men need and that's what they lack. And that's what drives this kind of, this nihilism, this sort of, uh, the suicide rates, for example. Yeah, the leading cause of men under 45 dying, um, unless you're in Canada, which is the state doing it for you. Uh, a lot of the time as well, this dispossession is caused by a lack of participation rituals <clears throat> or vocations. And this is something that I was talking about when I was over in, in Harvard recently with a bunch of young guys on the course that were talking about the acid forces of modernity, technology, and capital accumulation on tradition. So. The, the idea that the universal homogenous culture dislocates men from time and place and purpose. Mm. And one of the things we said, and, and I, I don't know how you gentlemen feel, but it's actually quite difficult to know exactly when to call yourself a man, particularly when men are starting families far later. I mean, you've got a head start than, than we do on that, but well done. Um, men are deciding to be in less proximate distance to danger. So there are fewer gun clubs, the scouts is unisex now. Um, things like this are where Men aren't as, they're not, they're not the provider, they're not the protector as, as they often were. There's not as many mental figures in their life. That's why Peterson was very popular before he slipped into a coma and, and Tate took over. Mm. And so when is the exact age or what are the landmarks that allow you to earn your manhood? There's no inductee into civilization for men anymore. Well, you, we just had a picture of Simone de Beauvoir on the screen and her quote, obviously, for all of her faults, one, does not, one is not born, but rather becomes a woman. Mm. That's true. And that's also true of men. You aren't born a man, you become a man. And not all adult males are men, yes. just as not all adult females are women. I'm not going to dox anybody, but I will say the other day when I took a week off and went back home, <clears throat> uh, I ran into somebody in the streets. And I think I've already told you about this, yes. but I've not told mm. you about this and I've not told our wonderful audience about this. Story I, time. I ran, an, I ran into an old friend of mine who I'd known since primary school in the streets. I'm not going to name him, obviously. Uh, but he was drinking in the middle of the street. He's a few months older than me, so he's about 27 years old. And he was, in the teen years, the one to go off and act reckless and wild earlier than all of the rest of my friends and I. And we always thought, oh, okay, he's, you know, he was quite enterprising and successful earlier on when he was in his late teens, early 20s, and then just completely dropped off into this lifestyle of constant hedonism where he'd be going off and taking drugs, uh, being with different women all the time, and having no purpose to his life. He still lives with his mum even today. And when I ran into him, he was talking to me because we just decided, oh, we've not seen you in a while. Let's have a chat. He was drinking a bottle of Heineken in the middle of the street, didn't even have the good grace to put it in a brown bag. 
And he was talking to me about how everybody around me seems to be getting their lives on track. And I just feel so empty and purposeless. And I've not done anything with myself. And he'd just quit his job the week before um, because sadly the job had been mistreating him, but still he didn't have anything lined up to go to afterwards. And he was trying to draw out about 70 quid so that he could go to a drug dealer and pick up cocaine, which he would then spend the rest of the evening taking in his bedroom at his mum's house where he has lived ever since I've known him since childhood. And um, when you're talking about adult males who are not yet men, sadly, and I hope this changes for him because whether or not I agree with his life choices, he is a friend of mine who I've known for years and years and years. I hope that he can get himself out of that rut he has found himself in and truly become a man because as he stands right now, he is just a, a grown boy. Yeah, and so this is moving on to some of the articles that have been produced. This is actually one of the positive things that's come of the more compassionate angle that some of these women have taken. I think sincerely, even if they don't provide as strong a message that actual men for men's experiences would. Uh, also, the likes of Nina Power, who I'm I'm interviewing tomorrow in her in her book, What the Men Want. They sincerely ask, well, how how do men see the vision of the future that stops them? from being in this malaise. And they don't just stigmatize them as, lol incel, you can't get a girlfriend, because they realize there's an unprecedented number of displaced men from vocations and from relationships. And they do take a compassionate stance of where, okay, maybe some of the incels might improve themselves by getting a better job and going to the gym. But it's not a fix-all solution for all of them. And you can still have compassion for people that didn't have a father figure in the household. And so actually don't have that framework, a bit like your friend, frankly, to pull themselves out of that hole. We'll say once again, without going into too much detail, let's say that he was not raised in a house with a father who was always there. And that wasn't because his dad was a terrible person or anything. They just separated from a young age. And so as a result of that, um, his dad was a bit here and there. So oftentimes you do find a lack of a father figure, a consistent father figure, even if they do have a dad who is in their lives, just not enough. And also, like you say, it's very easy for people like us to be able to say, oh, just go to the gym. Yep. That's not always going to be a fix-all solution for everybody. Although I would still recommend getting into shape because it will give you at least something to work towards. When we talk about getting a goal, I think that's one of the reasons that recommending getting into physical fitness is one of the easiest things for us to do is because of the fact that that gives you a goal to aim for. And of course, when you do that, you even listen to old interviews with Arnold Schwarzenegger, you'll never be happy with your body even when you do get into good shape that everybody else will be amazed at. But it still is a sign of progress. Yep. It's a great start. back on yourself. It's a good start. I mean, yep. I, you know, I, I don't know about you guys, but I, I owe a lot to Jordan Peterson, yep. you know, years ago. I mean, I, again, I don't follow him so much these days because yep. he's become, I don't know, a little there was bit. A nice he's picture. too politically involved. Though. Yeah. There was a nice picture that was released of him where he went off uh, camping with the rest of his family mm. and his own father That's and mother, nice. I think, yep. where he actually looked... Mm much more healthy. healthy and at peace than I've seen him in a so long time. But the, the, the kind of message that he pushes, the personal responsibility, the individualist vision, is a great start. And it really, I think it helps a lot of young men like myself, you know, yep. like us. Um, but that's, it's not, that's not the whole story, right? Because you can, you, know, you can get yourself into the best shape possible. You can be disciplined. You can live a very regimented lifestyle. And that's great. And you feel a lot better for it. But actually, if you don't have the wider purpose, the, the, the sense of belonging, it, it, that doesn't, I don't know, the sense of satisfaction that the personal responsibility gives you doesn't last. It needs direction. This is why it is a structural and social problem. And it's mm. a problem as well of vocations and the, the current economic system propped mm. up by uh, the mass migration and the like is if you get yourself in really great shape, 
okay, now what? You're basically the yes. trousered ape that C.S. Lewis predicted would come about, yeah. of where you're the Dino, you've got really inflated muscles, you look like a hyper-real version of masculinity, Now what? but you're sat behind the unisex desk job where all of your strength is non-functional, yes. and you're not actually protecting anyone, and you're not really providing for anyone, because mm. your job has no real tangible purpose, and your wife is doing the exact same thing. Yeah, I've been reading Thomas Carlyle's um, Heroes. Uh, on I, Heroes I need to read that. Excellent. Now, Got I think it. there's a lot to be, we can learn a lot about masculinity from this book, masculinity specifically, because I think it's tempting to say that <clears throat> the thing that defines someone as a man is fatherhood, basically. Yep. I think that's, that's quite a good um, of, rule of thumb, certainly one of. Um, but I think that the, the broader category of the heroic, that's a fundamental component of masculinity. And what Carlyle lays out in that book is that heroism is not just to be found on the battlefield. Heroism is also to be found in, in the poet, the prophet. Um, you know, the, the man but of letters. I would say the priest as well. Yes. This is, this is a conversation I had while in the States. There was a guy who was going into the Franciscan order that I met. Mm. And I didn't understand from, from a personal perspective, because the number one thing I want to do in my life is be a dad. Mm. And so I asked him, the first thing I, 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 I ever spoke to him about was, I just went, how did you reconcile giving up the fact that you didn't have a family? And he said, I realized as a young man that a lot of my desires I was chasing was to serve myself and I'd never be able to properly serve another mm. while I was chasing those um, earthly pleasures. And so if I forgo those earthly pleasures, I'll be able to serve a much more uh, mentor-based, uh, morally guided role without my ego coming into it. Mm. And I understood that. And I, I now get that is actually a path for some people who either can't have children um, because of lifestyle choices or infertility, or there are some people that, that seriously... Um, find that their character is insufficient to do so. And so you need vocations for those people mm. to still be able to provide moral fatherly instruction. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I, one of the avenues though, so we, we've just had a fairly rich discussion of the roads that men need to, to reconstitute in order to feel purposeful. And there has been a touching on this by some of the progressive establishment columnists. So Michelle Cottle did a, a piece in, in the New York Times recently saying that is the cure to male loneliness out in the pickleball court? And it's a little bit... This is where this image came from. Yeah. I didn't yes. realize, I've I like seen the I memes. prefer the variations. Yeah. I, I, I prefer the idea is the cure to male loneliness recon to, uh, reconquering Constantinople. Yeah. I mean, that seems like a pretty good goal to me. Uh, uh, Jerusalem, retake it for the Holy Land, boys. Yeah, <laughs> Sounds <we> good. <laughs> so she said, the more I learn about the epidemic of male loneliness, the more I'm convinced that America needs to send its men out to play. And she lists a bunch of different exercises like fishing, golfing, hiking, etc. What matters is that guys start clock clocking quality time together preferably without wives or girlfriends along. No gender has a lock on loneliness, but men in particular seem to be struggling with the basis of making friends today. A higher percentage of men than women report having no close friends at all, 15% versus 10%. So this is New York Times, yes. who are a publication who are broadly in favor of the, pro the progressive consensus yes. and would be absolutely in favor of all of the gains that feminism made decades ago, mm. including the breaking up of men's clubs. Yes and making it illegal for men to congregate in explicit clubs that segregate from women. Yes. So she has just decided to wrap straight back around. Oh, turns out, actually, yep. turns out if we do that, men start killing themselves. Yeah, progressives have re-engineered re Atlantis once again. Yeah. But, so the interesting thing is, though, so Mary Harrington actually makes a really compelling case for this exact thing in a chapter called Let Men Be, towards the end of Feminism Against Thank Progress. Thank you. And she I makes just want it, my man cave with my bros. She calls it the case for sheds. And she makes the case to the feminists themselves that refuse to accept that feminism has produced gender ideology. And she says, okay, if there are certain people entering your bathrooms and locker rooms that you don't want there, and you're wondering why the men aren't standing up to defend you, it's because you entered their bathrooms, locker rooms, social clubs, and the like, 
first by trying to dissolve them under the pretense of Equality Act legislation. Yeah, fem feminism decided that Boy Scouts was exclusionary. Well, it was Girl yeah. Scouts. You've liquidated gender differences and then wonder why gender becomes a costume. Maybe we should allow men and women to go apart so they can come back together. Mm. And it seems that at least one person at the New York Times is starting to formulate this, which is good. The interesting thing about this, again, I don't know about you guys, but my, I have sort of long maintained that you know, one of my closest relationship in my life is probably with my girlfriend, yep. followed very close by my parents, family, etc. Yes. But all of my closest friends are men. And I think that there is a, there is a depth of connection that two heterosexual men can share yep. that's actually deeper, in, in, in certain ways deeper than the connection you share with your intimate romantic partner. Because there's, there's a sense of brotherhood. There's, there's, yes. certainly there's a, a mutual understanding. Yeah, there's a mutual understanding. Um, that you just can't, that, uh, you can't have with a woman as a man. And that you also can't necessarily maintain with male and female friendships because the Mike yes. Pence rule does apply because even if you as a man are just being gentlemanly and, uh, and polite towards a woman, you can't control for unilateral attraction mm -hmm. and usually the friendship will fall apart. Many such cases. Yes, indeed. Um, also, the, sadly, that uh, same type of brotherly friendship that you're describing there when it is depicted in media or just shown in real life to happen, like it's, the rings. it's massively stigmatized because inevitably in the current climate that we live in, you can't have two men just be really close friends with each yep. other without some blue-haired moron saying they're gay. Yeah, yeah. That, that was actually that projecting their own weird even though, view of yep. the world. Even though Sam has kids with his wife at the end of the film, yep. for God's sake. So Judith Butler created the term homosociality to imply that men are only friends because they hate women and therefore there's always a latent strain of homosexuality. Listen, I can hate women with one, one, wanting to bang men. Come on. <laughs> yeah, Harry keeps his socks on at all times. So I want to jump over to Christine Ember. I keep because... my fingers crossed. It doesn't count. <laughs> she, she wrote for the Washington Post and she recently had a discussion with Chris Williamson on, on, on his podcast. Oh, really? Wisdom. Yeah, she's, she's actually been very sensible on this. I've, I've recently got her, her book, uh, Rethinking Sex, A Provocation, which inspired Louise Perry to write against the sexual revolution. So she's, she's an interesting thinker. And so she starts at her piece by listing automation, deindustrialization, free trade, and how the atom bomb basically cucked us all from warfare as emasculating forces that have displaced manhood. She says, meanwhile, women are surging ahead in the school and workplace, putting a further dent in the provider model that has been long ingrained in our conception of masculinity. Men now receive 74% of bachelor's degrees for every 100 afforded, uh, 74 bachelor's degrees for every 100 awarded to women, account for more than 70% of decline in college enrollment overall. In 2020, nearly half of women reported in a survey that they out-earn or make the same amount of their husbands or partners, a huge jump from fewer than 4% in 1960. And that's one of the leading indicators of when a woman will instigate a divorce, is if she starts to out-earn her husband, because unfortunately, um, the biological substrate programming that women would like a man to bring home the bacon for them kicks in. doesn't matter how much feminist girl boss brainwashing you decide to inflict on them. So then she goes on and she writes about Jordan Peterson and Andrew Tate and conflates the two. But she also said that she went to a Jordan Peterson talk in about 2018. And she said that she was quite alarmed by the fact that Jordan Peterson was saying pretty observable things about personal responsibility, like you brought up earlier, but that they were somehow revolutionary to men when they seemed self-evident to women who have had programming about them being needing to be empowered for the last 50 or so years. Particularly for the women have term. been told that they need to be men for the past 50, 60 years. And have been chemically engineered to do so by birth control. Another mistake, which has lowered testosterone from the water supply, but uh, conversation for another time. And she actually Get a said, water distiller. Yeah. But, well, you can't actually filter it out. That's part of the problem. Tap water is going to be invariably contaminated with birth control runoff. Yep, not great. Lovely. So she said, perhaps most alarmingly, many of the visions of masculinity these figures are pushing are wildly antisocial, untethered to any idea of good. Men are urged to situate themselves in a mythic story in which the world was always meant to be under their control. The fact that it no longer becomes fuel for defensiveness and a victim complex, one that has corrosive and tragic effects. Now, I don't think that's correct because 
men really do need a mythic conception of themselves, as she would later say, as protector, provider, and procreator. And she then starts wondering, this was part of her journey, why establishment politicians, and she names Barack Obama and Mitt Romney, I couldn't think of two more plastic men that are less likely to be male role models. Barack right. Obama, Michelle Obama is more likely to be a male role model yeah, well, than as, Barack. As recent revelations from his autobiographer have come out, Barack Obama really does enjoy the company of men at times. But um, Wait, what? You don't hear about this? No. Oh, redacted letters came out for, to Barack Obama's ex-girlfriends. We talked about having homosexual fantasies. Fantasies? Yes. I'm sure it just stayed there. Yes. Uh, don't say any more because you'll be Joan Rivers. All right. Okay. Anyway, so she starts wondering why that isn't the case. And then she spoke to a, a Democrat strategist because Barack Obama did a, a My Brother's Keeper initiative to try and ensure that uh, there were male mentorship schemes sponsored by the government. Now, I'm sure there was loads more progressive nonsense packaged into that, but she thought it was a noble endeavor. And the strategist said that the thing fell apart because progressive activists were trying to change the language and make it non-sex specific, even though they wanted women's empowerment programs. And she said something very interesting, um, the strategist. They said, um, the, the strategist described his party as having an almost allergy to admitting that some men might in fact be struggling in a unique way and could benefit from their own tailored attention and aid. When you strip out the specificity, people feel less seen. There's a lot less resonance. If the question is what scripts we have for men, how we're appealing to men, then being willing and able to talk about men is a pretty key component of that. We aren't making present anything in culture for men to emulate. There are a lack of mentorship figures. This is why they have been cast out to alternative media. And so this is part of the problem, even though I appreciate these women writing about it, it's further perpetuating the feminist lens that stops men from actually articulating their problems because no men are making present these problems and we need men specifically to talk about them. And so she finishes with this, something sensible, but also something non-specific because as not a man, she can't provide that affirmative vision. She says, I'm convinced men are in a crisis. I strongly suspect ending it will require a positive vision of what masculinity entails that is particular. That is, neither neutral nor interchangeable with femininity. So not like Caitlin Moran's suggestion. Still, I find myself reluctant to fully articulate one because you can't, mm. because you're not a man. There is a reason a lot of the writing on the crisis of masculinity ends at the diagnosis stage. What would creating a positive vision of masculinity look like? Recognizing distinctiveness but not pathologizing it. Finding new ways to valorize and tell a story that is appealing to young men and socially beneficial rather than ceding the ground to those who would warp a perceived difference into something ugly and destructive. In my ideal, the mainstream could embrace a model that acknowledges male particularity and difference but doesn't denigrate women to do so. It's a vision of gender that's not just androgynous but still equal and relies on character, not just biology. And it acknowledges that certain themes, protector, provider, and procreator, still resonate with many men and should be worked with and not against. All right. Well, to achieve that, yes. you're going to have to give men their spaces back and you'll probably have to repeal a few laws. And you're going to have to let them write about it, which Politico didn't do because they did an entire series on men and it was all female writers. <laughs> and they decided to just whine about BAP. Oh, this is where that article came. No, there are two articles. There's a brand new one in the Atlantic, which we should go ah. through at some point. Okay. Well. So what's happened is they've gone, men have issues. Who are they going for for advice on how to solve those issues? Now, oh no, these people solving their issues are fascists. Yes. Con yes. Congratulations. And so they wonder why we are in both a birth rate and a general sex recession as well. So this was a really interesting article from the Atlantic. And the share of Americans now that are sex positive and, and uh, have HIV cases at an all-time low, they're, they're all trending upwards. You know, birth control's free, but teen pregnancy has fallen. But the percentage of high school and college students who say that they've had an intimate partner in the last few years has plummeted to rock bottom, where Gen Z, fundamentally, are having less physical relationships than before. And the marriage rates have also fallen, but the cohabitation rates have raised as well. 
Ironically, it seems that the Pareto principle is getting narrower and narrower. Mm. Yes, and this has been exacerbated by dating apps and the golden penis syndrome of the rare few guys in university campuses. Don't laugh, it's actually a social cycle. Golden term. penis syndrome. Yeah, yeah. so the, the few guys on a university campus that are top of the sports teams will sleep with the vast uh, yeah. abundance of men, or at least have offers, mm. whereas the majority of men will not see any action while they're at uni. Yeah, Pareto principle. Yeah, yeah pretty, pretty much. Yeah. But, uh, but it, once again, it's getting narrow. Rebranded, exactly. Um, but the interesting thing is cohabitation is going up, and that's because out of economic necessity, people are moving in, and then you're getting the transactional effects on relationships where they think, well, we'll pay the rent until we can either upgrade our place or upgrade our partner. Mm. So you're good enough for now. And so we're almost like competing siblings rather than complementary potential partners. I mean, I, I will say, that this isn't necessarily something that is just exclusive to men, because I have seen quite a few videos of young, relatively attractive women yes. crying about the fact, that, I'm not saying that derogatory, they were literally crying yeah. in the videos, crying about the fact that they've never had a boyfriend, they've never had somebody that they could be intimate with, and they have never been able to speak to men as well. So while we're also going on about this being a, a specifically male problem, I'd say it's a predominantly male problem, but there are also women who are also suffering from the effects of the complete atomization of society that we exist within today. You can see that here. because So Chris actually put out a long tweet from data from Alex from DatePsych. And this says that 55% of single 18 to 30 men says they haven't approached a woman in the last year, but 77% of women from the same cohort wish they were approached more. This might be to do with the classic advice of if you're at the bar and you see the super attractive woman, yeah. approach her over the ones that you think are more attainable because the likelihood is she's intimidating to most men. She won't be approached as often. You'll probably be more successful. But then they've been discouraged in the last how many years by Me Too, too the risk associated with, and the total cuck that stepped out of the door in that Gillette advert putting his hand on yep. the guy's chest when he just goes to talk to an attractive We've woman. We've created a complete climate of people just being unable to try that first step to yes. just initiate conversation with one another. Well, I remember, Connor, you did that interview. Was it was on Piers Morgan with that yes. woman who said that it's, it's good that, that men are terrified at all times yes. of being labeled misogynists and rapists for just walking up to women and saying, may I buy you a drink? Yeah. yeah, and so that's the threat that lots of men are laboring under. And so for me, for me personally, like I've, thinking about it, I've never really you know, gone up to like a, woman, a bus stop or a bar all that much and under the auspices of getting her number because I haven't needed to just because the social circumstances that I've been circulating in, I've always just encountered women on a, on a generally platonic or business level and just struck up a relationship from there. Mm. So thinking about these men that were commenting on shoes video and these dead end jobs where they don't really interact with women, where they're not, their career prospects aren't really going anywhere, where they're not meeting new people. How awful must it be to never have any opportunities just open up to you in life and to be so denaturized from just approaching a random woman that it doesn't even come to come to a thought in your head. Or when it does, you're petrified of a false accusation. Mm. But you've paralyzed men and you've also made women, as you pointed out, far more lonely as a result. This social order is serving no one. It, it's, it's just dreadful. Well, no one. Well, uh, a few depopulation experts in the porn industry, certainly. And also, there is also the fact, and I have to play this video, that some women are acting against their own self-interest. And I would encourage people not to follow loads of accounts that are now gone to promoting OnlyFans model stuff, like yes. women posting their L's. That but, was very disappointing to see. That. Well, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, it seems to be something that some of them have been doing for a while. Really? It's just all of a sudden they've got much, much, much less subtle about it. Because oftentimes they would say, show, show an image of some girl doing something slutty. Can't believe someone would do this. And then the girl who's in the video would immediately Reply. comment underneath it. Right. So it was a way to try and traffic people to their account. But now they're just being 
yeah. mask off about the, it. And, and, and if you keep seeing these kinds of videos and posts, you might get blackpilled. And so I just mute these accounts because otherwise it's it's not the sample is not representative of all women, lots of women being underserved by this. But ladies, just a public service announcement. Uh, uh, don't do this if you want a healthy relationship. Oh, that's no, that's not it. Go back to the last one, please jump. That's playing out of the TV. That's all right. Not keep trying. Yeah, if she rejects you. you, you should not keep trying. Have you ever rejected a man specifically to test his determination to winning you over? Of course. I love the chase. I love the chase. No. Good show. Yes. You have? Yeah. Say why so they know. Because it's fun. It's a game. That's fucked up. <laughs> have you ever rejected a man specifically to test his determination to winning you over? Yes. 100%. <laughs> so then how does no always mean no? It doesn't. No can mean yeah, and yeah can mean no. Just depends on how you say it. We aren't mind readers. This is awful. I've been, I've been on the other end of this one time. I've done this before. I, I've been on the other end of this one time, and after about two weeks, I gave up. And now I'm with my, yep. <laughs> and now I'm with my fiance, Think and was what could have been, her. and was uh, and was told, wait, you got with somebody else. You kept telling me no. What did you expect? Yep, I don't blame you at all. And so, if we can go back to the tabs, please, John, because um, the the button isn't working. Uh, it didn't always have to be this way. Like it 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 could have been much better. Um, so there's an extract here from a book that that Mary Harrington tweeted out the other day. And it says, wealth belongs to the family and would family members hope to be passed down the generations? For most families, this wealth consisted of their home, the skills and tools they used to make a living, and their connections with other families. Their good name within the community, sometimes quarrels within families led to individuals being disowned, and these individuals had no connection to society unless they could find another family to be a part of. Now, the point here is that the individual, the consumer unit, the fungible knowledge economy person was not the primary unit of social organization. It was the oikos. It was the household. It was each of its constituent parts being irreplaceable and working together on the same project of mutual subsistence and solidarity. And breaking that up with the industrial and sexual revolutions has been a disaster for both men and women. And so hopefully we can uh, return with a V. So I'm going to end on a white pill. And that is that uh, high school boys, I don't know if you've seen this, are now trending overwhelmingly conservative. So the share of girls, so this is this is a annoying thing, who identified as liberal in the US rose from nineteen rose nineteen percent in twenty twenty to thirty percent in twenty twenty two. That doesn't matter though. Well, yeah, it doesn't. It it doesn't as long as, as long as they start pairing up with the conservative guys. Yes. Which I don't know if you saw a um, great post from Sydney Sweeney yesterday, of where she said, "I don't. I wish I was a mum by now. I'm reaching twenty five. What's the point of?" Having all the success, if you share, share it. it with someone, she's not even twenty-five yet. No. Oh God, I know. Um, well, if she'd like, still kids, got a chance. I'm, I'm more than willing to help out. Point <laughs> being, the the women, if they start seeing, Connor makes an excellent wingman. They start seeing if men trend conservative, they're just going to, especially if they're the more physiologically attractive and successful men, they're just going to have to compromise on some of their liberal values, which do not enmesh with reality. And this is why lots of women, after getting married and having kids, change their values. So men, basically, if you can, if you can see this chart. Uh, men can spearhead the way in reconstituting conservative social norms. And then when the attractive women start going for the attractive men who are more conservative, um, to quote Mary, culture is actually downstream of what the hot girls want. So all we need to, to do is find the men so attractive that they stigmatize the sexual revolution and they'll walk away from it Lysistrata style. So uh, I'm going to end that there, gents, but thanks for the round table. And basically, feminists, if you'd like the men to address male loneliness, um, let men speak. I'm sorry, I'm just loving looking at this graph and seeing that 
on the men's side, all of a sudden in 2008, something a, happened. A massive spike of them went, oh yeah, I'm totally liberal. Obama, love him, love him. Actually, he's my, he's my top guy. I'm Obama's top guy. And all of the girls presumably go, oh my God. So beta orbiters have destroyed the West. Yes. That's actually a better note. Yeah, that's what Gad Sab would call the sneaky effort tactic. Yes. Many such cases. Indeed. Right. All right, let's move on to something else. I don't know why the, uh, the, the stream deck is being a pain in the backside from my end, unfortunately. Yeah, it seems... No, I've, I've not used mine. Let's, let's test it. John, you're incredibly quiet in my ear. There's no point trying. Yeah, this is working all right. It's working for you. It wasn't working for me. That's fine. It's working all right for me. So let's talk about socialism, which is what the UK has been living under for a long time. Is it TPS? If we're perfectly honest, it's true. Yep. It's true. We've got socialist housing, or otherwise known as social housing. We also have migrants. Can you imagine how these two things might overlap with one another? Uh, line go up. Lines certainly do go up. Think of the GDP. Yes. I am thinking of the GDP. And with the figures that I've got coming up in a few minutes, it's not looking good. <gasps> Just because of the fact that some random economist who works for the government and the Bank of England can find some magical calculation to make the line go up primarily because this, this is going to shock you guys. Did you know that total government spending goes into the GDP as well? So it has no connection whatsoever to any actual productivity. The government could just print a trillion pounds tomorrow, spend it all, and that line's going to skyrocket, I tell you. Imagine. Imagine. I, I know, I know. It brings a tear to my eye. But no, it seems that migrants, shockingly enough, aren't actually the net economic gain that we're always told they are. Right. And in fact, might actually be an economic pull. They, they're not good for us. Yeah, they, detriment, they, they, make us they make us poorer. Unreliably, is actually not our strength. It yeah, I'm reliably told it's all doctors, engineers, and you know, nuclear physicists and so on. Are they Those not? are the ones coming over on the boats. But the Obviously, legal yeah. migrants coming in, well, they're uh, the bad ones. Right. But um, before I talk about it any further, we've got more videos on the website. As always, we've always got videos coming out on the website because we're productive guys over here, uh, including Dan, New Brokenomics episode, talking to Lawrence Leopard a man who is an equity founder of Equity Management Associates, a Boston money management firm. He also so, has the name of a Marvel character. He, he actually does. It's even alliterative. Yes. So this man probably would know how to run the UK economy better than our own government are. And on that, so what's the messaging we always get? The kind of messaging that we constantly get about migration is this from The Economist saying things like, a new wave of mass migration has begun. You can hear grubby palms being rubbed together and you can hear all of the all of the bank tellers going yes 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 yeah, this the is salivating of the professional managerial class but i ask has the last wave stopped did the last wave stop when was the last time that the mass migration waves stopped in the first place surely it's been a complete tsunami yep. that has swept the entirety of britain off its feet into the ocean now are about six feet under drowning we're back to being atlantis yes finally rory's going to be so thrilled yeah. i can't wait to tell him but let's just read some of the nonsense they put out here. So unemployment in the rich world at 4.8% has never been so low in decades. Bosses are desperate for staff with vacancies near an all-time high. Can you believe it, guys? Can you believe it? We're just starved for workers because everybody's just so employed constantly. You walk down the street, those crackheads in Swindon Town Centre. They're on their lunch break. Yeah, they're yeah. on their lunch break. <laughs> they, they just on their break. Yeah. Okay. Um, I've, I've gone over these fallacies quite a few times, but suffice to just say that one, 
Employment doesn't account for those who are classified as economically inactive, which is its own special category, which is actually quite a high percentage, but it basically means they can pump the numbers to make unemployment look like it's hitting record lows. And two, vacancies that are being put out there, which will go into the government statistics for immigration, for why they need all these new migrants, counts ghost jobs and, um, and applications that you can put in for jobs that you will never hear back from and no one will ever fill because most of the time it's just managers trying to make it look like they're hiring so that they can hit their own management targets. The government will take lots of different statistics like that, bundle them all together in a nice giant mush and tell you that because of this faked nonsense that they've just made up, that's why we need another million foreigners in the country. Manufacturing consent at this point. Yeah. Always, always. It's what they do. And they carry on in here. Economies that welcome lots of migrants tend to benefit in the long run. I want From to know what? that this is a very long time period they yeah. must be using as long run because that's doing a lot, a lot of heavy lifting yeah, in this sentence. You can, you can actually probably carbon date the epoch. Within a thousand years, guys. Yes. Once, once Britain is no longer filled with British people, when Britain has been redubbed New Pakistan, yep. then maybe we'll come out looking sun, sunny on the other end. When, like, you step out, when you step out into the high street of Swindon, do you look around and think, yeah. almost there. Utopia. Yeah, Bethnal yeah, Green has really there. benefited from migration. Yeah. yeah, just look at America. Where was the immigration coming from that made America successful, guys? Did they have a series of laws throughout the 18th and, seven, uh, and 19th centuries restricting it to a particular kind of population well, that I could was, emigrate? I was reliably told the Irish were black, so no, that's, that must be what it is. Good enough for me. The Irish have only just become white, therefore Africans. <laughs> Th that's why you need it. <laughs> to be fair, that is actually Ireland's current immigration policy as well. Exactly. So. We're white now, therefore we're racist, <laughs> therefore we've we got need to let more the, Africans. Yeah, we need more Africans to offset it, guys. And I hear that's going very well in Ireland. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Those Catholic churches. Foreign? Uh, call to prayer being played. Yeah, I mean, just the, the gaslighting in this rubbish. Foreign folk bring new ideas with them. In America, immigrants are about 80% likelier than native-born folk to found a firm. So all the Turkish barbershops we keep seeing probably. Must be. I mean, when you say just abstract, contextless statements like that, you just need to ask extra questions. Okay, what are these firms doing? How successful are they? Do they stay open for very long? Do the people founding them stay very stay in their area very long? There are so many follow-up questions, but no, just because of the fact that you opened a Turkish barber that's yep. definitely not a front for, law, uh, for money laundering, therefore you're a net economic benefit. I, 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 I want to add uh, foreign folk to the list of acronyms that that man pumping gas doesn't like. There might be foreign folk around here. I can't stand foreign You know folk. that's Jimmy Dore? That's not Jimmy Dore. That's Jimmy Dore. That's the meme. Yeah, that's Jimmy Dore. How did you not know that it was Jimmy Dore? That's why I somebody, don't know. I've just been using it ironically. That's why on somebody took the picture in the first place because Jimmy Dore looked sketchy while fueling up his car, and they went, "Oh my god, that's Jimmy Dore." Harry, do you expect to? I know what I'm talking about. I'm I'm in front of a camera all the time. Oh, okay, I just this, lie. The, okay, that's that makes sense. That's the GB news. Um, <laughs> I'm only joking. That's a joke. Uh, th but let's let's. Okay, so there's a man that they quote in here called Torsten Slock of Apollo Global Management. Who is he? An, sounds trustworthy. Who's an asset manager? who means that he is definitely not a professional liar, right. who says high immigration is helpful for the Fed as it tries to cool down the labor market and slow down, let me just repeat this, slow down inflation. Yeah, that, that sounds like MMT stuff where he's saying more people equals diluting the money supply. If, if, if you mean that 
overall, if you had a fixed rate of money supply, yeah. then yeah, there'd be less money to go around and that might cause deflationary pressures because each individual will have less overall money to spend. So places might have to bring their prices down. But that's not how inflation works because inflation right. is just when you keep pumping more and more and more and more money into the money supply. Yeah. That's not how it works. The people who are in charge, these so-called experts, never have any clue what they're talking about. This is truly, I don't know if you've come across this, Morgoth's law on display. Oh, Which yes. is any problem, inevitably the solution will be more immigration. <laughs> anywhere, in all times and places. More third world immigration into yes. European countries, more specific. Yes. And you get other articles like this from The Guardian, who you expect it from them saying, Britons have wished, uh, have wised up to the benefits of immigration. It's about politi uh, time politicians did as well. They're completely ignoring the fact that the Tories are and have been for the past 13 years the party of mass immigration. Yeah. They just act as though we're back in Thatcher's Britain or even, or even if it, they act as though Enoch Powell actually wasn't kicked out of the party in the 1960s. They always seem to forget, see how evil the Tories are. No, they kicked out Enoch Powell, the one man telling them the sensible things they yeah. needed to hear. Remind even in the evil racist 60s. The, the conservative policy has overseen a rate of growth to such an extent where one, population is only growing because of migration now, and two, the rate of population growth will require by 2046 cities the size of Birmingham, 15 to 18 new ones of them just to house the new influx of migrants. Tom Harwood is like that. Right yeah. Yep. <laughs> like that about many things. And so I hear. let's not forget as well, if you watched Callum's recent video on YouTube, which was excellent, he points out 40% of the foreign-born population of Britain came here in the past 10 years. Was you that until from London? Yeah. Was oh. that in New Labour? Was that in the 90s? Was that in the 80s? No, that was in the past 10 years under the Tories. That's, I just can't understand how you can have this take that because these the Tories people, need to wake up to immigration. You know, what, what well, go back yes, to sleep. <laughs> yes, they need to wake up to the horrors of mass yeah. immigration, but they, but they won't. But they won't. Uh, but then we, let's talk about social housing because that'll, that'll tie into the thread that I'm going to go through in a few minutes. So social housing, for those who aren't aware, in England is basically communist housing. Uh, let's just be fair there. So it's provided by either housing associations who are not-for-profit organizations that on their, uh, their own let and manage rented housing. From all of the testimonies I've seen, they're all useless. They're terrible. They were introduced in the 80s under Thatcher, and they seem to have just done the opposite of what they were intended to do, which was improve the conditions of a lot of the social housing. All they're owned by the local council, which is why a lot of it's known as council housing. Social homes are the only type of housing where rents are linked to local incomes making these the most affordable homes in most areas across the country. Rents for social homes are significantly lower than private rents, and rent increases are also limited by the government, which means homes should stay affordable long-term so people aren't priced out of their communities by oh, rising rents. Sure. At present, the law states who is entitled to social housing and should get preference on the waiting list, but councils have lots of flexibility on who qualifies locally, and social landlords can refuse to let people in if they so choose. I doubt that actually happens in practice. If you've got a landlord who says, we don't want this kind of person here, you can be sure what kind of person they'll be talking about and the local government will tell them, no, we'll sue you if you try and do anything like that. We'll actually take legal action against you. There are over a million households currently on social housing waiting lists in England. We've got a massive load of social housing and a massive load of people waiting for social housing. And it's basically, you don't get it for free but it's a massive discount to everywhere else, which means that if you put all this together, you can imagine most people who aren't working jobs are on benefits or are working incredibly low-paid jobs. Therefore, 
not that much of an economic benefit, if you're going to try and paint it in that light, are in these kinds of households. And as you would expect from this kind of housing as well, as with anything that is subsidized by the state, generally speaking, they're not very good. As well, uh, there is the perverse incentive to keep the number of houses being built for social housing low, as well as the number of overall housing built according to a complex planning system low, because 25% of all Conservative Party donors are property developers. That's why you get the, the new build Barrett homes yep. right next to motorways for all of the dinos that are bought on finance. That's why they keep bringing in a population to... Um, both artificially keep the prices high while also creating the manufactured consent for constantly needing to build more houses over the entire English country. And the, the, the planning commissions in the UK and the planning regulations are an absolute mess. Yep. They're essentially designed to keep it so that the southeast of the country is the economic powerhouse. Mm -hmm. You always hear people talk about London and the surrounding area is where all of the economic forces are centered in the country. That's why it's the richest part of the country. Well, well, well in the 1950s and 60s, it was looking very likely that, of all places, Birmingham was going to become the new economic center of the country. They were industrial zones. Yeah, the they were a massive industrial zone, and they were doing really, really well. And a lot of industry was moving there. So what London did to make sure that it could keep all business there was put in all of these ridiculous economic and uh, f planning regulations that meant that all of the businesses had to move back down to London instead. So London, to keep all of the industry there, crippled the economic productivity of the rest of the country. And then they binned off the actual home manufacturing industry in exchange for financial services, and that was spearheaded by Thatcher. Which This is why toys. everybody from where I'm from who would have been working in the coal mines and loving it mm, yep. are now working in call centers. Yes, and now we're stuck with zombie Thatcherism because the Conservatives don't have an affirmative vision outside GDP line go up. I mean, we were talking about masculinity. Working in the coal mines, I think a lot of those guys who were saying, you know, I'm just completely purposelessness. It's not like working in the coal mines. That would fill that hole pretty well. It would certainly fill the sense of community. There is a yeah. reason as much as I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, big up Scargill or anything. Mm. But the people who were involved in those protests and, and strikes in the 1980s, that's because they felt and they understood that their communities were about to get Something was decimated. Being taken away from them. Yeah, they weren't yeah. all communists. Like some of the spearheaders of the labor unions were Marxist subversives, but not every working man that went out on the picket line because you're taking his livelihood away was a foaming at the mouth socialist. I've got to tell you though, where I'm from in Kent, I mean, I literally, I've seen it throughout my lifetime. I've seen the, the hills and the fields be paved over for these oh. identical sort of Ikea um, you know, flat pack houses that look yep. awful. Deeply, exactly like that. Though. Yeah, it is terrible. Deeply anti-human aesthetic. I hate it. Yeah, it's battery horrible. farms for humans. Yeah. yeah. But once again, a lot of that will be to do with the regulations that all of these housing, build, uh, housing, housing companies have to adhere to that mean that they're unable to build anything that could be remotely aesthetically pleasing to everybody. They're all prefabs and they've also got to itemize each bit of square space down to the, the lowest common denominator to pack as many rent-paying people in it. Well, yeah, because that's the ironic thing. All of these regulations that are supposed to be keeping people safe, if you watch some of the segments I've done with Callum recently, the Callum's been going on about, all of the new build housing is terrible quality. Yep. Made out of spider webs and fiberglass, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, they're absolutely terrible. So everything that's supposed to be keeping people safe doesn't keep, keep people in safe. Case in point, this review of social housing that happened after things like Grenfell happened in, what was it, 2017, 2018? And then also the death of a two-year-old child, Awab Ishak, that happened in some social housing, where uh, Helen Baker, who was the chair of a housing charity shelter and also the chair of a review that went on, uh, said the recent coroner's report into the death of this child, uh, who died due to prolonged exposure to mold in his home, and exposed the shockingly poor quality of some social housing. The coroner found the toddler had developed a respiratory condition as a result of prolonged exposure to mold in his home owned by Rochdale Borough-wide housing. Now, with this, I will have to say that while it's true 
that the Housing Commission should not have allowed it to be rented in the condition that it was, there is still personal responsibility here on the part of the parents. Because black mold is disgusting. Yes, black mold is terrible to live with. Yes, but you can also go down to Tesco and buy yourself black mold remover. For a few quid. Just for a few quid. And if you go to this next article here, talking more about it in depth, you can see... Damn, let me just go a bit faster here. Come on. You can see the quality. That's disgusting, but it's also, you can see it. It's not like it's hidden in a corner that's packed away behind a load of furniture that that was there when they moved in. You can see that. And this one, there's the child as well who passed away, sadly. There's an image. That's right in the corner of a room. You can clean that. This is by the toilet. Yes. You use this every day unless you've got some kind of problem. So if it's right on the wall and it's disgusting, it wouldn't have been this bad when they moved in, I assume. And if it was, then you would immediately start cleaning it. Yeah, they called up the landlord a few times and the landlord was useless and didn't do anything. That is such cases. That is, yeah, that is entirely the fault of the landlord and the housing associations. But you still have agency of yourselves. It's terrible that this happened to this child. It should never have been rented out in this condition in the first place. But at the same time, the quality of the people who come in as well also has to be taken into account because the parents of this child sat around in squalor and let this happen to their own child. Also, so I'm not going to take away personal responsibility from them either. The social housing model creates a tragedy of the commons approach where everyone mm-hmm. defers responsibility from taking care of their own place. So home ownership actually encourages you to take care of your place, both for, for health and aesthetic reasons. Absolutely, it does. And uh, you know, I covered a bit of the politics by Aristotle from uh, uh, a, few, a few months ago on Stelios's show Symposium. Yeah, and even thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, Aristotle was making these same arguments against communal ownership of all of the means of production and against private property. Because he was saying, well, if everybody owns it, then nobody has responsibility for it. And everyone will just keep pushing it down and pushing it down the line until you get to the person at the back who then just circles it back around and nobody takes responsibility. That's something that you've covered with Josh that should be coming out soon, which is Brazil, which is if you have a bureaucratic system where everyone defers responsibility, it will be a form, then a form, then a form, then the form will get lost. And then you have to fill out a form to get back a fraction of the compensation for the damage that you have suffered. And then you have to pick up the, the pain and time and effort because some bureaucrat made a mistake. Yeah, I don't want to spoil the, that video uh, because uh, you should yes. watch it when it comes out. It's a really good one. But in that, we did discuss the fact that in, the, in Brazil, the characters, because it's just uh, the entire government is just a mass of different bureaucratic offices. Every single time you see any of, any of them try and solve a problem, the only way they try and solve it is by saying, not my department. Yeah, they kick they try the and pass it, pass it off to somebody else. Like Ian Holmes, his character is fantastic because he almost has a nervous breakdown at having to do something. Yes. The simplest thing, fill in a form, and he breaks his... <laughs> I'm getting off topic now. Uh, but if I go to the next one as well, that's, that brings us on to the focal point of this segment, which is a pair of wonderful threads on Twitter by a man who goes by the handle of Juice, at Juice8882. No longer a lurker in the bio. Now he's coming to his full power. This isn't even his final form. He did a little post about the black population of London talking about the amount of them that live in social housing and then decided, because he realized that, as he says here, that he is uh, retarded, that he could have got more detailed information decided to expand on them on this and so made these graphs. He got the information, if I just look here, 
from the ONS custom database. The most recent census, I would. Yes, this will be from the 2021 census, where he's looking into the ethnic groups and different denominations of people who live in social housing across the country. And we can see the percentages here, which are very interesting. So for whites in England, this percentage runs below the national average. Indians and Chinese also have a very low rate of social housing, though they are more likely to rent in general. Mixed groups have the high, uh, high rate and, of course, the already discussed black population. Indians significantly shift London's social and rent, uh, housing figures due to their large numbers within the city, making up 36% of the Asian population. But what does it look like in terms of the outlier of the Bengali population? They significantly occupy social housing per to their groups than others. 44%, almost 45%, of Bengali households in London are on social housing and rises to 81.9% in Islington. In terms of national figures, this is 33.5%. So once Very disproportionate to their makeup of the entire national population. Yes, it absolutely is. And once again, if you're in social housing, the likelihood is you're either not working and on benefits that are given to you by the government in the first place, or you are in a very, very low-paying uh, job, which either way, you're not going to be, as the economist would try and convince us, a net economic benefit yes. to the country exactly. that you found as your host. So let's carry on. So they go down to country of birth. Disproportionate levels of social housing in terms of country of birth is tilted towards the predominantly black countries in the Caribbean and Africa. Other Europe has the lowest figure, then Middle East and Asia and Britain, respectively. In the more dis, uh, detailed description of country of birth using select countries, we can see that this exemplified with the number significant outlier of the Somali-born population, which has a percentage of 72.3% in social housing. So let's take a look at this. So right underneath it is Jamaica, but even then that's a massive jump from 41% to 72%. Obviously, Jamaica has an overall higher population. But they're almost the same. But Somalia, we've got total households, 57,716. The uh, social housing, 41,000. So there's only about 15,000 households that are Somalian in the UK that aren't on government-subsidized housing. Yeah, I was shocked at this as well. The bottom figure was Romanians. Romanians are only 4.6% in social housing, which well, shocked me. Pickpocketing pays well. <laughs> I suppose so. Uh, United States is doing pretty well in here, Italy and France, but you can see that it's either those part of the Anglosphere diaspora, uh, diaspora who come back to the country or those in EU countries. And then you get to Kenya. Oh, Kenya's got less than Germany. Fair play. Then you get to Pakistan, South America, yep. and then it, it filters up towards the Asia and Africa nations. Absolutely, it does. And he continues and says, this rises in what I could find on the limited amount of data for detailed groups. For, uh, for Somalis in the Kensington and Chelsea borough to 95.8%. Uh, Keep in mind on year of arrival statistics, 63.8% of their population has only been here for the past 20 years. And as far as property prices go, that's at least in the top three in the country. So they are taking up the cheapest housing in one of the most lucrative areas and are depriving it from the native population. Yes, this is, this is just insanity. Like, why is this? What do you guys make of the idea that the whole mass immigration thing is at least in part this kind of attitude by the ruling class that they want to cling on to the kind of empire thing and so they import the empire into this country and take care of their subjects in this sort of way? Because I, I it's just insane. I, I don't think they nearly have the national sentiment to, to do that. I think it's just purely economic and material concerns. So they're just pushing people 
um, like square pegs into round holes yeah. wherever they don't quite fit. Like, why should there be a giant Somali enclave in Kensington? It, it, it doesn't matter. It just matters that they are um, uh, culturally apathetic economic actors that can re- register on a balance sheet and we'll put them wherever they need to go. Yeah, I honestly, I think they hate us. Mm. I think that the ruling class of Britain has, for the most part, become socially detached to such an extent from the normal population and is so averse to any feelings that could be described as patriotic or nationalistic that they have grown a contempt for the native populations of Europe. And therefore, they're just happy to do this. They're happy to screw us over. There's also the fact, of course, that we are a US vassal state Mm. and the US is already an incredibly diverse population even before the 1965 changes to the immigration laws that they had over there. And there's the idea that if you are a global empire, you'll tend to try and make the countries underneath you in your own image. In your own image. Yeah. Same with the EU. The EU was set up by people who uh, were eugenicists. And there was one man who wanted to ensure diverse populations had um, mixed children in order to eliminate racism. So he was going to try and enforce uh, uh, immigration from the top down. To South socially, American style. Well, social, yeah, so socially engineer the population to ab- abolish bigotry. And so they see our parochial cultures, our times, our places, our customs as impediments to engineering utopia. Mm. Yes. But in reality, all you'd be doing there is just eliminating any and all diversity that actually makes the world an interesting place to live in. Yeah, like we're nothing alike and, and they're just going to liquidate the North-South divide. And how are we going to have a punch up? You're not South, South, you're Irish. <laughs> I'm true South. That's racist. <laughs> Good. Uh, in London, he says, these figures become more extreme than the national average. 42% of those born in African households are living in social housing. 37%, when he talks further on down about religion, 37.6% of Islamic households in London are on social housing, and the highest percentage of which is in Islington, where it is 72%. That's Jeremy Corbyn's constituency, by the way. Yes, so uh, interesting. You could have seen that it would have been just as bad under a Labour government. After the specific shock of just how many of the Somalians are in social housing, he decided to carry this on to a different thread here, where he's going to break it down in further detail. So let me get the details here. So after my recent discovery of the shocking figures of 72% of the Somali-born population living in social housing, I wanted to conduct a more thorough swoop around their hardworking nature using the 2021 consensus. So he has some background here on the hardworking nature of Somalian people. And he says, 51% were not in employment in the 2021 uh, census, though it is to be noted that the pandemic may have affected this figure. Nonetheless, 44.3% had not worked in 12 months to the census and subdividing to 32, uh, 30.2% of the population had never worked at all. So they've just shown up and they're receiving all government benefits at our expense and they're taking up housing. Yes. Right. Great. Though juice, he carries on. Wouldn't the female population affect this figure? <laughs> yes, it would. You'd be correct. This does not change much in scale, however. 41% of the Somalian-born male population was not in employment at the census, again subdividing down to 32.8%, had not worked in a year, and not at all, which came down to about 20.5%. In economic activity, it is a similar value, 37.9% on economically inactive, which excludes students, which the previous figures did not. However, the majority in total are economically inactive. I have additionally included a gender breakdown in this. So that's interesting. So they come over here, they make money, and then they spend money. Net boon for the economy. Only for JD Sports and, uh, and tobacco sales. Yes. In terms of qualifications... 
32.4% in total have no formal qualifications. So why are they here? Females are more likely to have no qualifications, rising slightly to 35.9%. In males, this is 27.6%. Once very, again, very impressive they can be a doctor, lawyer, and engineer with that degree. I know. This is charity. This is worldwide governmental prescribed charity for people who shouldn't be here in the first place, who they are prioritizing over the native population. Charity has a, a moral and, and loving dimension by being willingly given. No, this is the extraction of resources from the native population to create a dependent class uh, of, of cultural liquidators as they come over here. And reliable voters. Yes. Oh, yes, that's a big part of it. Occupational-wise, Somalis are more concentrated in caring, leisure, and other service occupations and elementary occupations, which mostly consists of simple tasks and routine tasks and does not require much skill to be employed in. Deliveroo cyclists. Yes, about half of these work in these occupations. For industry, the biggest group are those in public administration, education, and health, then transport and communication. Half of the Somali population works here. So once again, they are net, uh, net detriments to the economy. And this is why I am so convinced now that our elites just hate us and, and are doing this out of malice. I don't remember who it was that said it, but I saw somebody say, listen, if it was just pure incompetence, they would do something every so often, just accidentally, that would be a benefit to us, mm. the native population. Not once. Not once have they done anything like that for as long as I can remember. So at this point, I just have to conclude that they hate us and they are evil and they need to be cleared out. And uh, on that happy note, let's move to the next segment. Yeah, it's not going to be a white pill, I'm afraid. It's going uh, to be a more, further... More migration misery, is it? Indeed, yes. Um, you know how to treat us, mate. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, Lee Anderson, who is the deputy chairman of the Conservative Party, has come out and said that uh, illegal migrants who don't like the conditions under which they're being held should F off back to France, or better, not come at all in the first place. So, my God, so based. I know. I, I covered a bit of this on yesterday's podcast with Callum, and I'm just going to say what I said then, which is that no mention of legal migration. No. Absolutely. And that's a crucial point that we're going to get into later. So this comes after 20 migrants refused to board the Bibby Stockholm, which is the, uh, the barge that's currently moored in Dorset, um, that's going to be used to house illegals. The carnival um, cruise, yeah. Yeah. Now, do you want to, I'd like you to have a guess um, why these 20 migrants refused to, uh, to board. I saw this, so I'm not going to spoil it. Harry, do you know the reason? I know the reason. I won't oh, okay. spoil it. Do you want if we can pull up the next one? Is, is it because it's literally a floating concentration camp? Not quite. It's better no, than that. No, John, no. can we have the next one? Let's, I'll move it to the next one. For, oh, no. Back one. There, there we go. go. Severe yep. fear of water. Right. Okay. So, so let, me, let me get this straight. Um, came over on an inflatable dinghy. Mm -hmm. Across the English Channel. Under yep. the auspices of an Albanian people trafficker. Um, celebrated as soon as they got to shore. Were so petrified of water, they threw their passports and all their personal documents in it. Yep. But, but now they, they, they can't go on the Disney Cruise Liner. Apparently so. Yeah, they got some good lawyers working for them there. Right. Okay. I, I don't, uh, I'm getting a strong whiff of um, BS. Indeed. As but am I. Fear not, gentlemen, because outside of these twenty who refused, the first coachload of migrants were moved onto the boat on Monday. Right. How many? A whole fifteen. Oh, brilliant! Fantastic. Wonderful. And finally, this, glad to see the system working. Yes. At last, hey, Rolls Royce service there. Um, the barge has a capacity of five hundred overall, so that's about. 1%. Well, nice and roomy for them. Of all that came in the last no, year. No, 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 but... no. 3% of the capacity of the barge. Yes, yes. Wonderful. Um, but the, uh, the TripAdvisor reviews that are coming out of the barge are a little bit mixed, um, with some saying it's got good food and beds, and uh, others comparing it to Alcatraz. 
Um, so I want you to be the judge. We're going to go into this, uh, this uh, video here, John. If we scroll down. Uh, sorry, it's, it's you, Harry, isn't it? So it's this one. If we watch this with the audio, please. It just looks like a typical Premiere in. Uh, oh. No, that's not the video that you're after, is it? Yes, that, if you click watch oh, video there. Not saying oh, what, who oh, sent us these snapshots of life on board the Bibby Stockholm, but Alcatraz. this is how he feels after his first night. That just looks like Our the room is PGO small. places I visited when I was clothes seven. in the closet for one person. That's better than my uni it's accommodation like room. Here. The sound of locks and security checks gives me the feeling of entering Alcatraz prison. It's terrible that they want to accommodate 500 people here. Somebody else filmed breakfast being served aboard the vessel that's designed to save money and show there's no luxury in our asylum system. I've stayed in worse hostels. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now That's better than every YMCA I've ever seen. Yeah. Now, there's one almost imperceptibly minor detail that does set this place apart, apart from Alcatraz, and that is that they can leave whenever they want. Go for a wander. And yeah, do, that tends to help. Yeah, go for a walk in the English countryside, presumably. Um, and I'm guessing as well in Alcatraz, they don't serve um, pancakes and frosties for yeah. breakfast. Nutella wasn't really I've not asked. Al Capone all that much. Yeah. I need to go back and watch that old Clint Eastwood film. Maybe that's a big plot point. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> anyway, we're going to move on to some of the reactions to uh, Mr. Anderson's comments. Um, so to start, we've got Alex Chalk here, who is the Justice Secretary. And uh, he said this on LBC. Clear off back to France. Yeah. Does he speak for the party? Lee Anderson expresses the righteous indignation of the British people. Yeah, he does it in salty terms, and that's uh, that's the that's his style. But his indignation is well placed. People are coming so you from agree. a safe They've country. Clear off back well, to yeah. France. Well, it, it, people are coming from a safe country. You know, France is a signatory to the European Convention on Human Rights, and uh, you know, the, people should claim asylum in the fir first country. It's, it's not like there shouldn't just be like a sort of open shopping list of where you want to go. So he expresses himself in his characteristically robust terms, but there is. A lot of sense, in uh, in my respectful view, uh, in what Lee said. Your colleague, yeah, Lee. it's amazing what you're saying. You're about to lose an election. Indeed. So, mm. if we pull up the next article, um, the government has come out and said that this is their official response. They back Lee Anderson fully in his comments. Now, I just have to ask: the way Lee Alex Chalk is talking there, he's talking as if he's in opposition. Mm. Yep. You're, you are the government. Do something. Yes. So frustrating. And uh, Robert Jenrick, likewise, has also come out and said, if we can again have the next link. That Lee Anderson is expressing the public's deep frustration. We understand. We understand the public's deep frustration. Hashtag 13 years. Yeah. Yeah. Do something then. Yeah. You have stewarded the demolition of this country. And again, as we have both pointed out here, they are saying nothing about the mass legal migration, which yes. is undermining the integrity culturally and the economically of Britain. And to Lee's credit, he has thrown his lot in with the new conservatives. That's Tom Hunt, Miriam Cates, Danny Kruger, who are some of the dissident backbenchers who have set forth a, a practical policy uh, set of set of ideas that want to reduce legal migration by at least 400,000 plus more. And they're all sensible suggestions. And then on the day this debuted, one, Lee Anderson was not allowed to go and speak with them despite signing on to it because of his role as deputy party chairman. And two, the people in Downing Street came out and said, we think the current number of migration is legitimate. So they are hiding the ball here. This is their five-point plan to stop the boats, but that just means creating safe and legal routes for all of these doctors, lawyers, and engineers to flood our country. I've got an idea. Instead of, I know that I know you've spoken to the new conservatives, yes. and I'm sure in comparison to Tories, they're all very nice and ch ch uh, chipper people. Uh, I've got a better policy than, what was it, 224,000 is net migration that they want to bring it down to? Uh, reduce it by 400,000. Down to about 200 and something thousand, yes. That's still a big number. I agree. That's still far too many people. I've got an amazing idea. Close the borders, yes. 
peaceful remigration schemes where you pay people to go back to their countries. And for those who are running obviously illegal businesses, start to actually implement fairly some of the business regulations that you have. Imagine that. That will probably make it difficult for these people to run legitimate businesses because they were never legitimate in the first place. Yeah, Imagine, And not... then they'll voluntarily choose to go back to their home country. But Harry, what will we do without the barbershops and the American candy stores on Oxford Street? I guess I'll just have to go and get my hair cut somewhere else. Please do. <laughs> so anyway, next we have the, uh, the reaction of the Manlet no King of class, London. No class, no taste, you lot, I swear. So the Manlet King of London himself oh, yes. saying... Uh, the, the poison dwarf. Indeed. Language matters. This lot has been in government for 13 years. After their abject failure, all that's left is stoking up more division and hate. We deserve so much better. I could have tweeted the first part of that. Now, I agree that we deserve better, but I think No, it's my... nowhere near wordy enough. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I forget your northern. We'll put it in a pop-up book next time. Oh, cheers. That's a big help. Um, but I agree that we do deserve better. But I think my our understanding of better is probably quite different to old uh, old Sadiq's. Well, he did say London needs more migrants. Yes, so he's going to make it worse. Indeed. Thanks. Uh, and next we have uh, Miss Two Left Shoes herself um, saying that this is a new low even for the Tories. And she followed this up oh, with this one was, of the most legendary tweets amazing. of all time. This was so based. You can take this next one, and she deleted it as well. I'm saying that's yeah. a joke, obviously. These migrants have indeed effed off to the bottom of the sea. Speaking about some of the uh, migrants that died in a shipwreck off Diane the Abbott announces her new relaunch of the BNP. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, just incredible. I mean, just let's just take that in. Just breathe it in, folks. God bless Maya Tusi for taking a screenshot of that. Everybody took her to... It took her an hour to delete this, which means it took her an hour to realise. Yeah, there was, <laughs> it took Keir Starmer an hour to get in touch, or Tony Blair to get in touch, to say, Diane. Yeah. Come on. There was <laughs> there was the um, suggestion that someone put this into chat GPT to make a sh sea shanty out of it. But, uh, <laughs> oh, God. I disavow. Yes, disavow strongly. Um, so let's just, okay, we're going to move into a more general discussion of the illegal immigration situation as it stands at the moment. So as you all will know, in the year ending March 2023, we saw about 45,000 people cross the channel in small boats. And for some perspective, that's six and a half times the number of men that William the Conqueror brought over in 1066. Yeah, I was going to say, if 2022 numbers were to continue as they were, mm -hmm. uh, the, the rate of exponential increase, by 2024, we're going to have more illegal boat migrants entering the UK than UK men who stormed the beaches of Normandy on D-Day. Well, let's not forget as well that in the entirety of last year, we had greater levels of net migration than we'd had over the previous thousand years before Tony Blair opened the borders. Thanks, I Tom. can't take you seriously. Take them <laughs> You're just going to have to learn to do it. Oh, You're just going to have to deal with it. So this graph shows the, uh, the current trajectory for 2023. And um, well, I mean, what is there to even say? Um, as of three days ago, 15,000 uh, have crossed the channel this year in 2023. Um, and so the figure for the same time last year was 17,000 roughly, which is obviously higher. Um, but 15,000 is still an absurd OMG, number. based Tories yeah. finally getting it done. Promises made, promises kept. <laughs> oh, thank goodness. Um, and it's, it's, I mean, it's still nearly double the total for the whole of 2020. And look, so. at, look at this. Somehow, in 2020, the pandemic year, mm. when everything was shut down, it went up from the year before. It's still multiplied it's, by, what's that, about what, four or five times from the previous year? People don't realize because it is such a prominent issue right now that the illegal boats has literally only become a major issue in the past four years. Mm. It's Weird. absurd. Absolutely Weird. absurd. Um, so the problem shows no sign of abating. So uh, shall we hear what our friends at the Conservative Party have in store to solve this problem? Oh, yeah. 
Illegal migration is simply unfair. It's unfair on the British people who have opened their homes to genuine refugees. And it's unfair on taxpayers who are having to spend nearly £6 million a day to put up illegal migrants in hotels. It's unfair on the people who come to this country legally, who see others jumping the queue. And it's particularly unfair to those putting their lives at risk in the hands of criminal gangs. That's why one of my top priorities as Prime Minister is to stop the boats. And I have a clear plan to get it done. Here's how. First, I recently passed laws that will mean that if you come to the UK illegally, you cannot claim asylum. There he is aiming the missiles. You cannot misuse our modern slavery protections. You can't make false human rights claims and you can't stay. These laws will go further than any government has gone before. Second, I've secured the largest ever small boats deal with France, which will see 40% more patrols on French beaches. An additional 60 French reservists were deployed this week. This will help stop the boats at source before they cross the channel. I've also negotiated a Dream deal with Albania, <laughs> which will make it easier <laughs> Sorry, to deport was, and deter illegal migrants and foreign national offenders. We've already returned over 2,500. A third of all small boat crossings were from Albania last year. Now they're down 90%. Stopping the boats requires international collaboration, and I'm making sure the UK leads the way. Third, I've increased raids by 50% to clamp down on illegal workers. I saw firsthand the impact this will have in deterring people from coming here when I joined immigration enforcement officers last month for what was the biggest ever single day of race. Fourth, I'm ending the farce of illegal migrants being put up in hotels by the taxpayer. One way we're doing this is by using barges to house migrants and reduce pressures on local communities. Fifth, I'm ensuring that the only way to come to the UK for asylum will be through safe and legal routes. And as we get a grip of illegal migration, we'll create more of these routes so that we oh, can yeah, continue to great. help those in genuine need, like we've done for Ukrainians. I know stopping the boats is a priority for the British people. And as you can see, I'm leaving no stone unturned to get it done. Right, so, so I can't wait for the collapse. Here's yeah. why I want to shoot him out of the cannon at midnight. The, the framing at the in start... Minecraft. Um, yes, yeah, yeah, confetti cannon, purely, so it's, it's not going to be violent. Um, his framing was, it's unfair because it impacts refugees, because it impacts the people that want to come here legally, and because it impacts the housing market. Any word on the native British population having an entitlement to say, we weren't asked about having our culture and country flooded by incompatible traditions Connor. at all? Connor, you're clearly mistaken. Don't you know there is no such thing as the native British population? Are you talking about Celts, Saxons, uh, whatever the other ones are called? I've forgotten all of a sudden. Because they don't really exist either, really, because at the heart of it, we're all individuals. <laughs> I hate zombie thatterism with a damn passion. I know. So I just want to say that what, Rishi Sunak... What, what's, what's the other one? I've completely forgotten. Jutes. Jutes. Right. Yeah, yeah, Jutes. Was there nit... nit... nits? <laughs> Not nits. I've forgotten. Be careful, Harry. <laughs> Moving swiftly on. <laughs> I've forgotten what they're called, so please correct me in the comments below. But Rishi Sunak does, he comes across like an awkward children's TV presenter. Yeah. Don't you think? Like, he, his whole persona just seems like an, an act. Right? He, he's got the sort of 
the clearly coached hat, like hand movements, body language. Um, and he's always got that sort of slight smirk behind everything he says. He was, he was like that in the hustings as well. When it yeah. Came, it was really impersonal. Like Ponzi sing song internet. He comes off like an Android from Westworld. Or yeah. Something. Yeah. And I love the music. Did you notice the music in the background was badass? And it's we're really it quiet done. in my ear, but yeah. I have seen this before and they have put some like hard beats. Yeah. It's behind. like something out of Mission Impossible. It was, I mean, it really. Well, he is also about the same size as Tom Cruise. <laughs> well, I want to see Rishi Sunak climbing a skyscraper now. There's a migrant at the top yeah. who's escaped him. <laughs> Just hanging on to the outside of the plane that was leaving Afghanistan. Yeah. <laughs> um, so obviously he went through his uh, his plan there. So um, I mean, first of all, on the deal with France, that's gone really well in the past, hasn't it? The millions and millions of pounds we've given the French to stop them, well, have them stop people coming across. Yeah, they just gone well. Wave them goodbye. At the shore. What happens yeah. is when you give people money to do something and they mm. don't do it, so you pledge to give them more money for that thing they didn't do. They just keep. They, they, do, they, they <laughs> yeah. do an even better job next time. Is I, I think that's how it works. This is Danegeld. You know, it's one of the oldest. Oldest things in English history. You just you don't don't give money to people who are trying to extort you. It's pretty basic. Um, the deal with Albania will have us pay them four point four million pounds a year to take back their most dangerous prisoners, um, and this money is going to be used to fund prison refurbishments, uh, increasing security, acquisition of rehabilitation equipment, and training of warders. So more taxpayer money going to foreign places. Um, Something he didn't mention in this is he's also, uh, just in the last couple of days, negotiated a deal with Turkey to disrupt people smuggling gangs. Um, and the partnership apparently includes a s setting up a center of excellence in Turkey, whatever that means. I suppose it's training even more dentists for is the this, Turkish team. Is this more money being sent to Turkey, like well, those millions the... of pounds we're sending them for that train line that's apparently going to yeah. give money to British bankers? Right. Presumably. Right. Um, Interestingly enough, Robert Jemrick has uh, refused to say how much we're going to be giving them, just that we are going to be giving them. Oh, that's nice. So that's good. Um, I'm sure that money will come back to us eventually. Yeah, and just the, the point where he says ending the farce of illegals being put up in hotels, as if that was not something that he and his government decided to do. Again, speaking as if the opposition did that, and now we're going to repeal it. I can't this. believe Labour would do this. I know, just insane. Um, so yeah, and it obviously ended on this, uh, this picture here, um, which... Oh, I mean, the the Rwanda work. exchange scheme as well, where we yeah. take, for everyone we deport, Rwanda can send someone over to use the National Health Service without ever paying into it. Thanks. Splendid and tremendous. Um, How many is it we've sent to Rwanda by now? Is it a couple of dozen, if Something that? like that. Yeah, very few. Um, so a few points here on just what Rishi Sunak has said. So as Carl rightly points out, the language that Rishi Sunak uses, where he says jumping the queue to get to this Britain, uh, to, to get to Britain, um, as if Britain is just some economic platform, some, you know, place defined by the an economic zone. Yeah. That's all we are. Mercenary incentives that anybody can come and just exploit. Um, the New Culture Forum, likewise, um, have also said that if illegal, even if illegal immigration was reduced to zero, we would still have a migration problem, yep. which is absolutely correct because the primary issue with immigration in this country is legal, as we've said multiple times already. Um, and I think the crucial point there is that it, the illegal channel crossings are such, they're an incredibly useful tool for the conservative, because it's such an obviously, visibly egregious and outrageous thing. It's just insane. It's totally created. Yeah. yeah. And so it, it can be wheeled out to, to gin up fury among the people and take their eyes off things that are actually, in, probably in the long run, more damaging, like the fact that you know, legal immigration is at an all time high. Um, and, you know, it's just, again, as much as it is an important issue, the illegal immigration, you can't take your eyes, you know, ignore the noise, focus on the signal focus on what's actually doing the damage, and that is the legal immigration. 
Um, so, Lee Anderson, as I said at the start, he said that they should F off back to France and he's received the full backing of the party. So, we just have to ask, do you believe them? Do no. you believe that they're going to get this done? No. He's since come out, <clears throat> voice crack, he has since come out um, admitting humility, admitting that the Tories have failed to tackle illegal immigration. Um, and again, he's received the full backing of the party. So as far as I'm concerned, we have to look at this as a tactic. It's so, a game. so the Conservatives' tactic for the next election is to continually come out and go, yes, we're terrible, mm. vote for us. Trust us, we'll fix our own efforts. The thing is, I think Lee is actually sincere. I think there are some sincere backbenchers that are hamstrung by the permanent managerial class which is encrusted over the cabinet which uses illegal migration as a distraction technique to mask the fact that they are wedded to an economic system which keeps importing people from the third world en masse as economic actors to keep artificially inflating the GDP because they can't achieve growth and so I believe him but it doesn't matter well, it's it the just doesn't matter the party keeps coming out and saying we stand behind this entirely okay so what's the positive thrust of your next election platform is we're going to fix the problems that we created in the first place, and then what? Mm. But Harry, have you considered Labour will be even worse? I know, but Tories will still be terrible. So, great. Yeah, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, we have to assume that anything said by a high-ranking politician has been cleared with uh, the top brass of the party. So we have to ask, what is the game being played here? Because we've seen how the Conservative Party treats genuine dissidents in the form of Andrew Bridgen, identified as an enemy, cleared out with immediate effect. If this was the case with Lee Anderson, that would be happening, but it hasn't. So what's the point of this this tactic that they've employed? Um, I mean, again, I think it's basically to throw red meat to the gammons. He's on our side. He's one of us. He gets it. He's using harsh language and so on. But ultimately, it's containment. Exactly. Yeah. It's containment. That's right. Um, and I agree with you. I think, I mean, Leanderson may well be sincere. I met the guy once, and he seemed like a decent enough guy. He's got a fairly based history. Started out as a coal miner. Um, did that for 10 years. Worked for the Citizens Advice Bureau. And then volunteered in hostels supporting the homeless. Began his political career in 2015 as a Labour Party councillor but was suspended in February 2018 after he used boulders to block a group of gypsies from setting up camp at a site in the area. Rightfully so. Yeah. For the many, not the few. I thought that was Labour's thing. Indeed, yes. So shortly thereafter, he defected to the Conservatives and uh, stating that the Labour Party had been taken over by the hard left. All good, all based, all true. He campaigned for Brexit and he also campaigned on issues such as halving the foreign aid budget. So again, you know, we might look at this guy in isolation and think, okay, I can get on board with a lot of this stuff. But ultimately, he is a spokesperson for the party. I mean, as you said, the party of mass immigration, the party that has done the most damage to this country and that will go down in history as being, again, the stewards of Britain's destruction. Um, and he's, something else he said was uh, he, uh, on the small boats crisis, he said, I'd send them straight back the same day. I'd put them on a Royal Navy frigate or whatever and sail it to Calais, have a standoff, and they'd just stop coming. So again, good, good rhetoric. Yes. But until we see Royal Navy frigates in the channel, until we see this problem solved, and most importantly, until we see the violence being inflicted on the English community in the form of mass legal immigration addressed, the words that these traitors use don't mean a damn thing. Very well said. All right, right, so we've got about 10 minutes or so, I suppose, so uh, jump into the video comments. So in regards to independent media, um, it does does bother me that I don't see a lot more of it uh, widely available. I mean, because you got the distribution out there, which is pretty easy to come by, which is the internet. You got... um, Technology that is a lot more accessible now to your average person to to pull together some money and actually have um, something going to process a movie and so on and so forth and all that. Cameras are never even uh, better quality than ever before. Like I don't know, it's just strange that I don't see that many movies that are fully independent. 
Um, well, I would suppose it's because of distribution as well. Like trying to get a streaming service to pick it up, you've got to hit certain diversity targets and the like. So unless unless Daily Wire decides to stop making crap, then it, 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 they're still going to have a stranglehold over the process. And Daily Wire, let's be honest, like the way that Fox were, are a big enough organization that they will probably still be under legal requirements under the Civil Rights Act to make sure that they can demonstrate that they don't have disparate impact as well. So they'll have to have diversity quotas as they're hitting. Yeah, possibly so. On to the next one. California News. A San Francisco narcotics officer, Christina Hayes, was banging her informant. Because of this, 132 drug cases are in question with 81 dismissed. Among those, a case where police confiscated enough fentanyl to kill 2 million people. Her behavior also taints Alameda County, with nine more cases dismissed there, potentially up to 40 more. At this point, I'm done. No more female officers for any reason. They ruin everything. Also, why are they always frumpy? <laughs> Don't get blackpilled about women. Don't get blackpilled about this women. Is a, this is a good question. The frumpy question is a good one. And also, just the fact that they always seem to have um, lots of misadventures mm. as well. Interesting. Whether inside or outside the, uh, the department. On to the next one. So I had an interesting conversation with one of my friends about AI intelligence. When we were talking about Midjourney and ChatGP, but uh, he argued that a lot of the stuff that they use is copyright. I see it more as a tool than anything else that can help people, say, improve their artistic skills or even writing skills if they are a pretty poor writer. But I wanted to ask the panelists uh, of Lotus Eaters what they think. Do you think these AI programs such as Midjourney, do they improve people's creativity or do they rob it? No, they'll, they'll it will ultimately render people obsolete. Like What you're going to get is you're going to get a few uh, rich people that are going to come back to the... Um, not guilds. What do they do in the Renaissance where they, they sponsored specific artists to become Renaissance men? Um, I don't know, actually. Oh, basically, some, some rich philanthropic aristocrat will pay an artist to make novel content and they'll, they'll set them up, like artists in residence style thing. Whereas most people are just going to be eating, um, uh, consuming AI-generated slop and so, and also it's going to atomize people even further because even if we put the same prompt into an AI-generated film uh, creator, then if you say, give me Tom Cruise's Iron Man, you don't know whether or not the AI have generated the exact same movie that both of you are watching, so you'll never actually be able to share an experience. And it will be constantly iterative. It will be uh, what Plato said, that the art's going to end up becoming a form of a form of a form of a form. Of a form of just are you just on about the patrons? Yes, patronage. That's it. Yes, yeah, patronage. Um, you're still going to get some patronage for some sincere artists. It, it might even be like the dissident art that, that you covered yeah. at, at the exhibition. Um, but the majority of people are just going to eat up computer-generated crap, and they're going to outsource all of their decision-making and creative faculties to algorithms and render themselves obsolete. Cheery, I suppose. Anyway, so we've got a few minutes for a few website comments from each segment. Uh, Base safe. Notice that conversations about what being a man is involves about discussions about providing, meaning, honor, motivation, etc. Discussions about what being a woman is have become so void of meaning that now women are women, men are women, the squirrel is a woman, the stick is a woman, don't get husbands, get jobs, brag about your divorce rate, children are bad, family is evil. Maybe the male loneliness epidemic has something to do with the fact that our companions have been stripped from us by the modern zeitgeist. Uh, That's yes. actually a decent point to make as well. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I think this is, but this is the important thing, is that women are being spoken to in that way. Like, Louise Perry and Mary Harrington now have careers because there are enough discontented women with the sexual revolution, they want people to give voice to their innate sense of ick. Mm. And so if they walk away from this, great. But they're also going to want strong men in order to build the families that they feel they have been robbed of. And 
if women are dominating the conversation on what makes a strong man, then those men will never have a mental figure that leads them into that place. Back to Carlisle, though, I do, I really do think that the concept of the heroic and the noble is not necessarily sex-specific because I think motherhood is a heroic endeavor, mm, right? Absolutely. And I think that, I don't know, just recognizing that is, is probably a good place to start for both women and men. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you need to start building the bridges back between the two sexes. Mm. Mm. Yeah, uh, uh, reconstituting sexual solidarity. That seems to be a project that, that quite of the reaction feminists are, are going on. And so I suppose we need to add our lot, lads, and be allowed to add our lot as blokes. Uh, one more from me then. Kevin Fox, in defense of incels, it's a new book title, I, I remember having many female friends who would complain about how they felt nightclubs were like a cattle market where they're being appraised by the men, the, the university very much so. All the world doing exactly the same thing themselves. He's too short, he's too fat, he's losing his hair. Those same female friends would come to me for relationship advice and then ignore it. The common denominator amongst all of them was that men were uh, they went for were the macho man types who then mistreated them. Yes, and, and this is also what is needed. Rather than women telling men how to be men, women need to set standards for themselves, uh, gatekeeping their relationships, and men will rise to the vocational calling, but also women need to have tempered expectations. So the OKCupid data, for example, that said 80% uh, so women found 80% of men less than average of attractiveness. But your, your ratio is just mathematically skewed towards the impossible there. And so, sorry ladies, but you're pricing yourselves out the dating market and don't be surprised when you're unhappy. So, so give men practical and tempered avenues to being good men worthy of husbandship. And also look always at revealed preference, not spoken preference, especially yeah. when it comes to ladies. Yeah, I just want, before we, sorry, before sorry. we go on to my comments, I just wanted to highlight this one from Grant Gibson that's under your segment as well, sure. saying, just to jump on Connor's throwaway line there, it finally happened. Someone was in the ER because she had attempted suicide and was asking, asked if she had considered medical assistance in dying because the system has a very high backlog. I saw this story oh, earlier. Completely inhuman. Want to uh, kill yourself? Why don't you just kill yourself? Anti-human. Well, do you want some help with that? That's yeah. what the system is saying there. So for under my segment, socialist housing for Somalis. So Derek Power says, gee, the cathedral emasculates the native male population and is shocked that the infrastructure needs to be maintained. Solution, import more migrants. Yes. yes. More yes. law. Every single time. Yeah. Ross Diggle, when council homes were first created, there was a contract. You had to have a job, be married, and maintain the property yourself. Standards were expected. Sort of. Thatcher then did come out and say that if you're a single mother, you'll be able to be guaranteed to get a council house. So she dissolved a lot of those social expectations. I thought Thatcher was based. I thought she was telling the country to pull up its bootstraps and get on your bike. When we extinguish the ghost of Thatcher from our contemporary political consciousness, that will be the day that we escape the managerial materialist paradigm. Hmm. Letter M is not for mass migration. I'm sorry, but that with that moldy house, I would have been shocked if there wasn't a tragic death from that house sooner, for it already looked like yes. death. Yes. Once again, the people in charge of that house who are managing it have their own responsibilities, but also if you're living there, you have a responsibility to look after yourself. Brian Tomlinson, Hillingdon Council Houses over 1,200 refugees and have closed their waiting list to people born in Hillingdon. No surprise, sadly. A young couple born in Hillingdon are forced to pay £1,200 a month for a private flat in a council block. The ov obvious answer is to turn up with their three children and pitch a tent outside the civic centre. The other obvious answer is to take a ferry, uh, ferry to Calais, then jump on a dinghy, throw the passports away, and ask help for Calais to help them. Yeah, pushing our own, our own population to absolutely ridiculous degrees um, to be able to even just get a flat, which is ridiculous. You know, social housing has its own problems, but at the very least, if you're going to implement a solution like that, don't just completely cordon it off from the native population because mm. that's what it was there for in the first place. Kevin Fox again. 
Harry was talking about the responsibility of the individual in social housing to do something to improve their situation. The problem is, for many, they had no father on the scene or a father who was a couch potato rather than a boomer farmer and uh, father and mother who would deal with the issues rather than expect the uh, uh, HA, the Housing Association, to deal with it for them. Possibly, but in this situation, the specific one that we're talking about here, we're not talking about a fatherless household. We're talking about an actual full household where it's a mother and a father and their children who just didn't do anything to fix the obvious problems with the home that they were in at the time, which was full of black mold. It can, Yeah, it would be a, a day or two of disgusting work to clean that place, but are you going to do that or are you just going to let your son choke to death? It's a sad reality. Last one. Sophie Liv, got to love how quick fa- uh, today's fashion changes. Ukrainians are out. Somalis are in. Yes, and let's go to the last Wonderful. few yeah. comments. So, last few comments. So, Ethelstan95 says, Lee Anderson should be the ideal Labour leadership candidate. He speaks like a working man. He says a lot of what they think, and he's not particularly conservative. He's an epitome of how the right just con- uh, continues to add disenfranchised lefties to the midst and follow the Overton window to the left. I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, yeah. in your Friend Enemy uh, podcast, um, you yes. covered this, how, you know, just because they... Just because a leftist disagrees with some of the current, you know, some of the current thing. Just because you fell off the cultural yes. revolution train at this stop. Yeah, doesn't make them an ally. Absolutely. No. Um, Omar Awad says, stopping illegals is plugging a tiny leak in the dam to distract from the raging torrent that is legal immigration. We all agree. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, Matt P says, biggest ever small boats deal because there was only one before, but will I meet that bit? Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and Andrew Narog says, the British government trusting the French and Albanians to stem the tide again because it has worked so well in the past. And that's exactly. why you know that they're not actually committed to solving the problem. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. All right. I think we've uh, probably we've tortured run- John enough at his desk. We've run over, but yep. uh, I think necessarily. Worthwhile. Uh, Charlie, there's uh, your Twitter on screen. Yep. You can follow me at cfdowns underscore everywhere and you can find all my work at my website, cfdowns.uk. Yes. It's almost redundant plugging you at this point because you're basically part of the furniture. Right? Indeed. Yes. Uh, always, always a pleasure, gentlemen. Thank you very much for joining us, everyone. We'll be back tomorrow at one o'clock. Until then, take care and see you later. Bye.